in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbartis. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. Chad, how are you? I am so excited to be on a historical podcast. This is my bailiwick. I'm this here is this. really your bag. Yeah, it's yes. time finally for Chad's reckoning. A historical. It's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> your time. Yeah, right around this patriotic time. Hey, are you going to be participating in any hot dog eating competitions this year? I have done that by accident. I was enrolled after I had a giant like Sabaro's pizza dinner. Someone, they didn't have enough people. And so they put me in this hot dog eating contest. After that greasy pizza, I came in second. And <laughs> I was so sick and miserable. So never again. But I've got a t-shirt to prove it. Yeah, I, I got I got mistakenly entered into this hot dog eating competition, and all I got was this T-shirt. Yeah, it was. We need one more. My husband's doing it. You go up there, and I'm an idiot. So why not? <laughs> I beat someone that was prepping for it, but we were both miserable. That is a miserable experience. Props <laughs> to uh, Joey Chestnut and all those folks that can just crush it. I have no idea. I was miserable for like 20 hours. Ah. Uh. Yeah, I can't even really imagine doing it. I can do four hot dogs, uh, but it's all four at one time. That's my little party <laughs> trick. <laughs> That'll get you some free drinks. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's really about quality over quantity for me. I eat them in such a sultry way. Well, uh, it's not just uh, Chad and I talking about uh, patriotic hot dog eating consumption. Uh, we've got a guest, and he's coming to you from, God bless you, United States of America. It's your special guest, Mr. Stephen Haley. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself, Dustin? I'm super excited. We love when we have a guest. We, have, we love our patriotic episodes. Uh, it is our Independence Day show. And so, Stephen, uh, what is an independent movie that you love? Just something that was kind of produced outside of the major film studio system. It's probably going to go back to a classic from 2004, Shaun of the Dead. Nice. It is something that I can rewatch multiple times over and over again, and I'm always going to still get a laugh from it. I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's pretty good. Shaun of the Dead was the only of the of the. Uh, I know Simon Pegg and his writing partner is it Snow or Frost. Nick Frost. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Nick Frost. That they've done several things, but Shaun of the Dead is the only one I come back to. Yep. I think Hot Fuzz gets a lot of good credit, but it's uh, not a Shaun. It's not a Shaun of the Dead. What about you, Chad? What's the independent movie that you really dig? It Follows is probably my absolute favorite. That is just such a banger of a horror film. But I'm going to give you something obscure. Okay. WNUF Halloween Special. If you can get your hands on it, it is a treat. What does the WNUF stand for? It's literally supposed to be like an 80s station. It was made in 2013, uh -huh. but it's got a bunch of 80s commercials. The reporters are doing that cringy 80s banter with each mm -hmm. other, and it's just charming. 
cringy banter, you know where to come, folks. Right. Uh, well, for me, I uh, I was like, man, what even counts as independent film nowadays? And so I, I I looked up like the list of like highest grossing independent films. You know what came up number one? Return of the King. What? I don't know if that qualifies, sir. No. <laughs> Not sure how they did that. So I just went and looked for some low budget films. And I think it has to do with my first time watching it. I went and saw Blair Witch Project in theaters when it came out. You knew it. Uh, I went and saw it in theaters. I think I've told the story where me and my dad actually walked back from the theater to our house through the woods at 2 a.m. Talk about a feeling that really comes out from the movie experience. That is awesome. Well, Stephen, what is the last movie you saw? It doesn't have to be in theaters. Just- uh, it was actually the uh, quite recently in theaters. It was the new Dungeons and Dragons movie that came out. It was absolutely amazing. Such a old-hearted movie that you take your family to, and no matter of all ages, you're going to get some enjoyment out of it. Yeah, I think it, was, it wasn't quite a like stand-up-and-cheer for mm-hmm. stuff, but for anybody that enjoys that medium or even just that genre, uh, I, I really enjoyed it as well. Chad, did you see it? I did, yeah. You even get the gelatinous cube. You get a lot of fun references, but my wife, who is not a D&D type person, she wanted to go see it. She had a good time. She missed out on a bunch of the references, but hey. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan. Great, <laughs> Jonathan, <great time. laughs> the Aarakocra. So I, I got to say, uh, eventually, Chad, I'm going to have to get you and the rest of the hosts on a little retro dungeon round table where I, I run a game for y'all. I have been begging for this for years. <laughs> Eventually I'm going to wear you down. I will roll my critical hit. We just, we just have to get everyone, everyone involved and everyone willing to play. Uh, what was the last movie you saw? Dad? Spider-Man across the spider verse. Hmm. And I had no idea it's a two part movie. So it, it ends on very much a cliffhanger and now I've got a year. I have gone on record to say that I haven't really kept up with whether Marvel or DC. I haven't really kept up with the superhero movies, but I think my biggest regret is not jumping on these new Spider-Mans mm-hmm. because I only hear good things. And the previous one had like brought back a bunch of the ones from the Raimi Spider-Man. Yep. Uh, yes. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I guess I need to take a little time. Miles Morales is such a cool character. Love him. Uh, my last movie I saw was uh, from a while ago, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping. You ever heard of this? I have. How was it? Way better than expected. Huh. Way better than expected. Uh, you, you have to think about the Lonely Island doing their skits on Saturday Night Live. Uh, they really had uh, the, the medium down, the little three-minute produced short, uh, which to me was going to spell disaster for a movie. But luckily, I watched it with uh, some sort of slap happy friends, and we, we were able. I think sometimes the audience you watch with really changes your impression of the movie. And so I actually I would probably watch it again. I, th- I think it was pretty good. Excellent, Chad. What are we covering tonight? Well, we are never stopping with our freedom. It is the Patriot from <laughs> yes, two thousand, <laughs> from year two thousand. That's right. Starring Mel Gibson, Heath Ledger, Jolie Richardson, Jason Isaacs, Chris Cooper, Checky Cario. Rene Aubergenois and Tom Wilkinson had a budget of $110 million and grossed $215 million, so a little less than double. Came in 19th in the box office that year, uh, placed ahead of Remember the Titans, another banger, and it placed behind Chicken Run, uh, which I suppose has fans out there. My wife wants to do that so badly. I know. I do not On the show, Chicken Run? Yes. 
You'll have to sit it out, so she'll just be with us and the rest of the degenerates. Uh, yes, I will kick her over to Lizzie. Be like, this is your problem now. Uh, let the record show that I said degenerates and Chad's first name was Lizzie. Okay. <laughs> so, Sorry, Lizzie. Uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas was our number one movie that year. I still actually hold that one in high regard. Yeah. Our IMDb rating is 7.2, and our Rotten Tomatoes is actually middling, kind of our uh, C, D-plus area. Uh, with the critics giving it as low as 62%, but the audience giving it a high 81%. Well, the thing about that is that Rotten Tomatoes is open up to the entire world. Not everybody <laughs> likes United States freedom. So we really have to take that as a subjective score. <laughs> yeah, the, right. the British hate this movie. Exactly. Man. Exactly. No, it's, whenever you're talking about history and, and factual evidence, it's, no one really gets it right. <laughs> <laughs> but, Dad, I think we, we'll, we'll probably have to turn to you for a little bit more of that detail later. It uh, was nominated for some awards, Best Cinematography, Best Original Score, another John Williams mega hit, mm-hmm. and Best Sound. Makes a lot of sense. It did win an Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography Award at the American Society of Cinematographers for Caleb Deschanel of the Hollywood Deschanels. Stephen, I think you had really come to us and said, when are you going to get the Patriot on there? Hey, hey, when are you going to do Patriot? And so I imagine that you had a bit of a background with this movie. When did you first see it? Oh, it, this is the American dream story right here. <laughs> uh, walking into 10th grade uh, history class and then uh, your coach, who is also a history teacher, uh, for some reason, just coming in to work with a headache. And the lights are <laughs> off. And there's a TV there. And uh, next thing you know, we're watching The Patriot for the first time in 10th grade. Over the next three days of class, we just watched The Patriot. And it was the first time I got to experience the movie and i was glued to it ever since to me it just brings back that good memory of one not having to sit in class uh, when did you first see it Ted? i saw it on a ski trip this was one of those movies that they threw on the bus to keep us entertained keep us quiet less rowdy and while some of our class really wasn't paying attention i i was enamored by it uh, mel gibson was a megastar at that point in time he hadn't mm-hmm. gone off the rails done anything super racist that i know of right. it's uh i i like war movies i like well i like historical war movies i'm not a brian fry sadness black hawk down brian brian likes the sad it's got its place yes so i i was entranced from the first time i saw it and the title is appropriate. This is a patriotic film. You you kind of have a root for the United States, like root for America's roots. From uh, the maker of Independence Day. Yes, exactly. Like we have like the big feel about what this movie should be. Um, I saw this in theaters and this was something that I think either an older friend, it wasn't my dad, but an older friend said, like, let's go check this out. And I, I know that, you know, Braveheart was one that like we had rented, but I was I knew nothing about the person Mel Gibson. We'll we'll talk about how sometimes it's easier to just kind of enjoy actors for their work as opposed to gossip magazines or what they say outside of the film. But I was just like, hey, you know, I guess yeah, we'll, we'll check this out. I wasn't of the age where I was like, yeah, war movie, I got to see this. But I I really thought this was great, and I would say I have. 50 watches of this movie under my belt wow uh this is also one of those movies where i would in order to help me study i would put something on that i had familiarity with to where i could be distracted by it 
and then let my homework distract me into being more productive. And I, w- I would play this distraction battle and uh, that would somehow help me out. But this is one of those. Uh, so, Stephen, you're revisiting it for the show, which means you have a little different like viewpoint on it. What were you expecting this time? Whenever uh, I watch this movie at least twice every year. And so whenever I was revisiting it recently, I really tried to deep dive into like the little details of it and like try to get more of just the whole story arc of it and just try to dive into individual characterism. You get a different feel of the movie because you're kind of taking the plot out of it because you know it and you start focusing on the little mini plots that are happening inside the movie, the story that's happening without the main story. And it uh, gave me a lot of enjoyment of looking at it that way. The way you put that is really interesting to me is being able to enjoy a movie. If you already know the plot inside and out, both, both of us that chat, how many viewings do you have? You say, I think this is maybe my third viewing. I have not okay. seen it very much. Rookie. <laughs> right. It's Rookie a, numbers. I, I told Dustin off air. This was an interesting one for me because uh, to let our viewers know, I have a master's degree in early American history. I'm a published author on early revolutionary periods. So revisiting this movie after going through all of my schooling and all, all of my reading and things like that, I don't do that in my daily life. I write code, but it was interesting because I'm able to kind of pick out little things while I'm watching them saying, oh, okay, okay, this is where this battle is. This is who this character is kind of imitating because they, it, it's Hollywood history. The yes. Smithsonian's involved, but there's a lot of Hollywood history going on. So it was interesting. My advisor hated this movie, by the way. She held this up as like the worst atrocity possible. I view that I love the movie Troy. I view this in the same category as the Troys and the Bravehearts. It's fun. It doesn't have to be nailed to the wall history. Right. And it, it might be too tall of a task to do. My uh, 10th grade English teacher is the exact opposite. You know, he told this to the highest regard when it came to American history. So it's just, you know, two different viewpoints. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, I'm just thinking of like coach who ran my wellness program. <laughs> Essentially, he would hold up and like he would probably show Fight Club and be, yeah. be like, yeah, check this out. You want to learn something for real, brother? But to, to look at a movie and say, I already know the plot. I already know what happens. The, the, the poignant moments, the spectacular moments, the feeling of, hey, the Americans are pushing back the British. Those, we kind of expect that. And so if you can go into a movie, it really gives a lot of credit to the rewatchability of any movie is, like, I already know what's going to happen. Now let me pay attention to something else. And that's really great. And that's something I was able to do too. And because it's a period piece, it almost goes without saying that I think period pieces help hold up very well. It's uh, aside from the antics of our actors or any of our executives. Uh, that's the kind of thing that we don't have to revisit. But speaking of revisiting, Chad is going to help us do that. He's going to give a plot summary of the year 2000's The Patriot, but he's going to do it after this short commercial break. So if you haven't seen The Patriot, go watch it right now. Come back and listen to us afterwards. See you on the other side. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? 
Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back. We're covering The Patriot from the year 2000. It's time for Chad to give us a plot summary. Take it away. Captain Benjamin Martin, who's a veteran of the French and Indian Wars, called to Charleston, South Carolina in the midst of the War for American Independence to vote on a levy to support the Continental Army. He, along with his seven children, travel to the Capitol, but Benjamin abstains from voting, claiming that since he won't fight, he's not going to force others to. The vote passes anyways, and his eldest son, Gabriel, joins the army against Benjamin's wishes. Two years later, Gabriel is injured carrying dispatches and returns home with several British and American soldiers who've been injured. They're followed by Colonel William Tavington and his men who arrive at Benjamin's house, execute all the American injured, take Gabriel for execution, kill Benjamin's second oldest son, Thomas, and burn his homestead to the ground. Probably thoroughly establishes Tavington as a bad guy, mm-hmm. but, but wait, there will be more. That incites Benjamin to fight, and he begins a campaign of guerrilla warfare against the British, eventually joining the Continental Forces in combat as well. He meets Tavington face-to-face and swears before the war is over, he'll kill him. Tavington, now knowing the identity of the man who has been terrorizing his men, burns Benjamin's sister-in-law's home, then locks a small town in a church and orders it burnt to the ground. If this dude had a mustache, he would be twirling it. Gabriel gets a shot at Tavington but is killed during the fight, and Benjamin debates desertion. He does find a repaired American flag that Gabriel had been mending, and this inspires Benjamin, and he enters the battle at Cowpens, waving a flag and at times using it as a weapon. He kills Tavington and the British retreat. The epilogue shows the British surrendering at Yorktown, and Benjamin and his band of merry guerrilla fighters rebuilding <laughs> his home. And viva liberté. Yeah, the French <laughs> finally show up at sea to stop Cornwallis's retreat. They were there earlier, but... Yes. I'm not going to limit how many times you do that, Jack. <laughs> you should, re- because eventually it will no. be like this tool. Shut shut him up. No, no. <laughs> I want I want you to, to insert yourself into those anytime. So we have a movie that opens with a tomahawk and some war material going into a box. Yes. And there's an ominous song playing before we see our title card, The Patriot. But then we get to this uh, South Carolina home with a single father, seven kids, living the kind of the the farmer's life, uh, building a chair. And (laughs) we don't know yet, unless you've seen a trailer, we don't really know anything about what Benjamin Martin used to be. That's something that comes up a little bit later. But yeah, so we have this kind of an idea of citizens maybe it's because he's a landowner not not entirely sure but we have the idea you know citizens voting uh, what do we want to do oh you know massachusetts and virginia are at war but south carolina is not so we have uh, several acts to this movie but it's in our first act that we're kind of looking at how the american people are dealing with the tyrant across the water uh, so like in this revolutionary time Stephen, 
was it because of your coach's great history lessons that you were like looking at this like, oh, no, I kind of dig this? Or is this like revolutionary area something that you've got like interest in? Probably the revolutionary area, like getting into college. Remember, I first started, I uh, started uh, taking a bunch of American history classes, mm-hmm. um, getting into uh, this is a movie of mine that I enjoyed so much. And then, you know, going into the military and then going into like having that patriotism stint. This movie, when I first saw it, wasn't the best thing in the world. It was a great movie, but it wasn't. I love this movie over the time of like how I grew to become a patriot, I grew to love the country that we're a part of and grown to love the American history that we had leading up to our freedom and rights that we have today. That's whenever I started to appreciate it because there's different standpoints of the movie that I feel don't really hit you unless you have uh, been there. And you've been to points of like breaking points, like Benjamin Martin did when he lost his son. And he was like, this is it. Whenever he saw his son go into war, he was still trying to get it back. You're like, it, it's time. I have to stand up. Got to do what's right. I guess I don't want to say instead of, but I think the thing that keyed me into this movie was, ooh, I get to see Mel Gibson kind of be this violent whirlwind of blades, which yeah, it's appealing to a teenager. But it's in this first act that we hear his words, things like, I... I would not trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one, one mile away. Right. And I, I really like that he isn't shown as just, you know, like a, like a Liam Neeson taken style guy who just <laughs> has this ability and is waiting for when it's going to happen. He just kind of settled down into this, like, oh, this is how I believe we should think about avoiding war at all costs. Chad, how, how about this sort of first act where we kind of learn about Benjamin Martin as the citizen, the caring voice in the Continental Congress? I like this because the Carolinas, it's different than Boston. It's just different than Virginia areas. The Carolinas were very, very split. Actually, the majority of the people that fought in the Carolinas, this was sort of a civil war for them. They were fighting brother versus brother. So that we have loyalists who are on the British side and we have the separatists, we have the revolutionaries. So we, this is a very split feeling. You get the feeling in the movie of, hey, most most people are really on board with this. We hate Britain. That wasn't the case, at least in the Carolinas. And so I, I like that little bit of politics. He would have fit right in he uses it as, I don't want to fight, so I'm not going to force other people, which is great, which is noble. I, I admire that in a leader of, I'm not going to force you to do anything that I'm unwilling to do. And I I do like several scenes that we get, this is a little bit later, but uh, the women urging people to fight, this was a real thing that would happen. They would wind up giving flowers to people that they feel were cowards, and you'd get little tokens mm. from women of saying, hey... Go fight, or you're going to get this token to show that everyone knows you're a coward. So we get Anne in the church standing up yes, and imploring yep. people. Yeah, uh, Gabriel doesn't have to try hard to recruit at all. No, Anne no. does it for him. Starts calling out her dad, mm-hmm. pastor, mm-hmm. Um, anyone that's talking bad against it, just saying, I have heard your voice. Don't be a coward and say it behind closed doors. Now is your time to stand up. And I would say that I think that for any... American looking back at like the Revolutionary War, 
sometimes, uh, whether it's books or other media, do a good job of showing you that split of uh, we'll, we'll take, for example, Adam Baldwin's character, who's a loyalist, Wilkins, who actually joins up with the Dragoons. Uh, so we have uh, a little bit of that split, but we get something also pretty interesting from uh, Ben Martin, which is that the fight, if it happens, I think it was something like, mark my words, this isn't going to be just fought on the battlefields. It's going to be here at home mm-hmm. and our children are going to witness it firsthand. And that's when we really get that this movie is, I'm not going to say equal parts. I would say if you asked Mel Gibson, he would say, this is a movie about family, not a war movie. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I'm a parent. I haven't got the luxury of principles. That hits hard. And it's because the fight gets brought to his doorstep that we get the tragedies. And that's when we get his son, Thomas who sees his older brother, Gabriel, who was caught up in the fervor, I want to join the Colonials. I want to do my part. I'm old enough. He was carrying letters uh, trying to get them to someone else. and He was caught, and you're not supposed to be killing a messenger. Nope. Right, and that's where we get, man, we get one of our great movie villains, don't we? Colonel William Tavington, who says, we're going to slaughter the wounded Americans, I guess rebels, as he says, mm-hmm. uh, and we're going to send our send our wounded to our surgeons. And it's when uh, he he's he's breaking a you know a, a rule of war here. He's you know Benjamin Martin stands up for his son, like no, he's a courier with a marked bag. It is against the rules of war to touch this guy. And that's when we get our just our first inkling that all right, having to like it, who's watching me? Who what, what's What's going to happen if I end up being this kind of underhanded or overly brutal type of character? You would say, uh, tell me what you think about this, Stephen. Tavington's character and Tavington's actions really set the rest of the film in motion. It is an entire domino effect of what happens then. It is if he, if Thomas did not die, if uh, he did not want to be as brutal as he was, and it's even foreshown later in the movie and told to him. His face, and we'll probably cover that later. But it is one of those moments when it's your actions have consequences, and they're you're not going to get away from them. When you say domino effect, is it fair to say that if Tavington follows the rules of war as gentlemen fight, that the British would have won the Revolutionary War? Historically, if you're talking about a history <laughs> fact, absolutely not. America would be ten out of ten. <laughs> um, but if you're talking about this. This movie, when they talk down as Americans, it is a uh, <laughs> definitely no. It doesn't. You, the ghost doesn't get created. You don't have all of the hatred that is being thrown back towards him. If if you know the family members are dying and they're surrendering and they're getting their sons and their loved ones back, but then they have to just be underneath the king that they've done their entire lives. Uh-huh. They're not going to continue fighting. They're not going to have this wrath, this rage. But whenever your son dies, your daughter dies, your cousins are dead, your neighbors are burned. It's, it gets to a point of like, what do we do? Right. He is the Grand Moff Tarkin type character of fear will keep them in line, but you blow up Alderaan and you tick off everybody else and hundreds of systems wind up joining in a rebellion. I, what, what's interesting to me is I wish they'd kept their original name 
So he's based on a guy named Bannister Tarleton, which is a much better villain's name and is how I remember the movie because I think I even said Bannister Tarleton is just a fantastic evil villainous name who's a real historical figure. The the issue with Bannister was he claims his horse was shot out from under him after Americans had surrendered. So they began firing and they killed all the captured surrendering Americans. That was his story. Whether it was true or not, we don't know, but it worked against him. Everyone, he became the butcher Bannister. And so that was a huge recruiting effort, just the hatred and vile stories of this man in South Carolina. So it, it does work like that in the movie as well. Yeah, the the support of the militia, their strength, their resolve to come back after furlough, the idea that his sinister acts as just one man, part of a larger you know British army, but it's it's through his brutality that uh, the militia of the Carolinas and what we end up getting, which leads to our American victory is you would say Cornwallis would agree that like they wouldn't be as ardent and they would not be fighting so hard if it weren't for you. You created this ghost. Imagine a soldier like you that's decorated as you defeated by a bedtime story that like, yeah, it was because of that. How nice is it, Chad, to get a villain introduction that really spurs on the next essential hour and 45 minutes. It's not just a, you know, claim towards world domination or i'm going to drop a bomb on new york right. it's it's this kind of build like that that's something that i think is that this movie really has going for it and he does it all for ohio yes <laughs> tell me about ohio <laughs> that's right because that yeah it'll be it'll be a new aristocracy of landowners i love a good villain and he just he revels in it he views the rebels as so far beneath him that they're not even deserving of the honors of war. I don't think it's so much that he's a sadist or masochist. He just doesn't view the people he's fighting as worthy of that honor. They are they are breaking the rules. They are willing to fight in the woods instead of like gentlemen. They're not willing to march the line. They're not, they know they're inferior. And so yeah, he they treats, won't fight a proper war. Yeah. So he treats them as inferiors. What else about Tavington, Stephen? While we're on this one character, Jason Isaac's character, the, the Dragoon Tavington. The biggest thing that probably this past watch through that I noticed is that all you can tell is uh, Colonel Cornwallis is belittling him. <laughs> yeah. And it's in, if you look at it from his point of view, he is tasked <laughs> to win this war. He is tasked to come over here and completely do what he needs to be doing to be victorious. And that's what he does. And so he's doing his job and then he's getting belittled by Cornwallis and just not even like, oh, you're a peasant, you're beneath me. And so as he is being treated as a peasant, he is then treating his people that he's going to slaughter like as peasants. Like he is then, Mm. it is all just rolling downhill. So you could say it's on to him, but actually his boss just kind of sucked. It might, yeah, it might have been the uh, Cornwallis inflicting this trauma onto yeah. uh, Tavington is is why, like, he's almost seeking this approval. We learn from Tavington, and this is on this most recent watch through for me that I was really paying attention to when he's getting dressed down by 
Cornwallis. Uh, and several times, I think it's three separate instances. Um, now we get a little like a sardonic, like sarcasm. We get Tabington kind of standing at attention, but it's almost like he's standing. If you could personify an eye roll, that's mm-hmm. how he's in front of Cornwallis. When the ship blows up and he takes that drink, that is the fireworks. Yes. Fireworks. And, and he downs his drink. And then I think they give you the little sound effect of glass breaking. Uh, yeah, that it's uh, that. That's what I noticed about him. I think Cornwallis deserves some attention, but we, you know, we spent some time on our villain, Benjamin Martin, the ghost leading our militia in the Carolinas. Now, I don't think Hollywood was obsessed with the anti-hero or the dark hero yet, and I don't think that's what this is. But how important is this past of Benjamin Martin to like? how we root for him. It's He's a guy that is, like you said earlier, he's just a farmer. You really don't know much about him, like what his past was. He's, his wife is dead, where he's just trying to take care of his kids and, and be a good man. Yeah. If, if you start this movie knowing nothing, yep. uh, and, and like let's just say you weren't even familiar with Mel Gibson or like Lethal Weapon, you weren't familiar with some of his action roles, you might just think, oh, this is just a, a guy. Yeah. It's what any guy would try to be doing in that scenario. And then as it comes out is he is not okay. <laughs> um, it is, you notice in one of the first scenes, whenever he breaks a rocking chair, it just because it's not, it's, he can't get it sitting. It is, that's a first sign of PTSD triggering from his past. Hmm. It is anger outlashing and he just tries to keep it net cooked. And it, that is like probably the first subtle hint of like, there is a rage here. There is a, a level that he has been walking on eggshells of not being himself. And then it, it, it builds up to where he has to be broken completely before he can get back up. And so whenever Thomas dies and then like it, it is a, you made me, you wouldn't, I would, I would not be here fighting this war if you would not have done what you did to me. Mm-hmm. And it was, that was, was just so iconic to see like you opened up Pandora's box. Yeah, Chad. What what about you with Ben Martin's past at Fort Wilderness? Uh, it might even be just the way that he uh, like describes with with his children, like the, the, he kind of tra- trained them. Aim small, miss small. Uh, what about like Martin's past? That, like w- was sort of intriguing to you. So I laugh because Fort Wilderness doesn't exist except in Disney World. That that is where Fort Wilderness is. There was nothing in the uh, American Revolution for. F- or French and Indian War for Fort Wilderness. But yeah, we get a little glimpse of this when he goes to rescue Gabe. And he goes absolute bananas on right. the last guy that he is just chop- chopping up. And his sons are like, yeah, I wrote Whoa. down his sons are s- realizing we don't know who our dad really is. And yeah, we find out. I don't think they dwell on it enough, but we get the story of what happened and him straight up committing war crimes as retaliation for the uh, Native American massacre that took place at the fort. And he does say, hey, that got a peace treating within a couple of days. So, right. Yeah. But, and and he, he even says the terms like, as if I need to justify my actions. Right. In, in that first scene, whenever he starts chopping him up and then he puts his kids to bed, he tells them like, hey, you did what you had to do. Don't feel sad. Right. And then you see his sons just go, oh, I'm not sad. I'm happy I killed that man. 
And you can see on Mel Gibson's face is like, I don't want that for you. Yeah. But at the exact same time, it's like, you did what I, what I told you to do. Like, it's, it's, it's fine. Like, I'm not even going to respond to you being happy because like, he doesn't know how to respond to that. It is a, that's not something that he wanted to put onto his kids. Yeah. And that's why I think he went to go into the war to get his kids away from it. So they didn't have to see it. Well, it's great advice he gave them too, as far as marksmanship that, and it was something that Mel Gibson was given by the armorist and the, the sharpshooters there was aim small, miss small. So the point was, and it's not really expanded in the, the movie, but his training was if you're aiming at a man and you miss, you miss the man. If you're aiming at a button and you miss, you hit the man. So we have this war crime past. Now, the, the movie does, I think, I'm not going to say it overextends, but it tries to give you enough to be like, well, you know, the only reason we did that was in response to what the French did. Right. And, and that the only reason I've kind of turned back into this maniac is because of what they did to me. And he's so temperate and uh, mild-mannered when he's uh, voicing his opinion uh, politically. And I think, I think some credit needs to go to Mel here for acting gently, is how I put it. Mm -hmm. It's I would I would like to put it is a he's a man that has seen a lot of stuff that has his demons, but he's he had that happen when he was a boy, and you gain wisdom with age, and you gain mm -hmm. wisdom with doing things that you don't want to do and regret, remorse, and after losing his wife and seven kids, you kind of have to box it up. Yeah, there's no time for this anymore. And, you know, I don't even, I think it's referenced that, like, you get, you get drinks bought for you because of these stories, but I don't even know what you did. Strangers know more about what you did than I do. And I think, to speak along, like, Mel's acting here, he is not reading bedtime stories. He's not playing with dolls with his little daughters, Meg and Susan. Like, he... he only with looks, and we are helped with the score, and we're helped with the framing cinematography, but we get the idea that what's most important to him is just that he's a good father. Yep. Yeah. So an old saying that uh, back whenever I was in the military, it said, uh, no good metal is worth talking about. Mm. You would say he's uninterested in any colonial or like military medals or recognition. <laughs> you could say he's fighting just to... Get off my lawn. Yeah, right. <laughs> Get away from me and my family, please. Taxation without representation. Speaking of family, we've got his, uh, I guess, sister-in-law. Right. Uh, sister-in-law. Right. Not a confusing relationship. Chad, when this, when this was, because it wasn't until I was in like my 20s that I was sort of like, I, it's hard to say understand, but I was getting like the idea that like, there's nothing particularly strange or wrong about this, but it does seem that way when you're young and you don't have those sort of moral complexities. Uh, what do you think about like the relationship with Charlotte and uh, just kind of how you've got, you've got Ben and Charlotte. You've also got another dose of a little lovey dovey with Gabriel and Anne. Uh, are those welcome to you in a movie like this? You know, with Charlotte, I would have liked a bit more explanation because it would be very strange for her to have a plantation and to be a young, attractive woman without some kind of backstory of where was your husband at this this period of time. It wasn't right. uncommon 
for, say, she was a widower and Benjamin was a widower, widower, even if that was his sister-in-law that they would marry. That would have been something that would have made sense. Right. You, you kind but, of... Yeah, we definitely don't know where any of her assets or money come from. Right. She just has a very <laughs> large plantation home and we're given no explanation. So I kind of would have liked him to say something like, oh, I knew... I knew your husband or my brother-in-law in the war, whatever, killed in French and Indian war, something for that backstory. We're just left to assume it. I, you know what, with Gabe and Anne, they, they initially made it much worse in the movie Anne got pregnant before she was burned in the church. That was in the first draft. And it's like, Oh, we, we don't need to go that dark. It's dark enough. Well, and wouldn't you say that they probably didn't edit around I believe Gabriel says to Ben, hey, you told me I'd understand when I have a family. Mm-hmm. Now I understand. That probably was written with the still the initial idea of uh, she had she's pregnant. She's, you know, uh, with Gabriel's child. Uh, so that's that line was probably written for that purpose uh, because and, and I'm not I'm not trying to define family here, but I think it does make more sense to a broader audience. So like, oh, when you have a child, as opposed to. Uh, I think they, they're they not even married yet. He's just calling on Anne at right. that point. I think you're right. And I do enjoy some of the insights to this, the courtship rituals, the asking to write to Anne and to call on her. And they, oh, we, write her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and we even get the- Of course you call yourself a man. <laughs> we get the bundling, which is such a unique thing thing where they would literally put you in a burlap sack and tie your feet to the bed so you could not have sex but you would be in the same bed together so that that's kind of a fun thing that you just don't see very often and and he takes it in stride he's like oh i think it's a wonderful tradition he's he's our little charming guy i think he is representing that like he is he wants to be patriotic. He wants to fight for his country. He also wants to. Uh, he's he's not a bad boy at all. You know, he, he, not at all. He he's he's a good boy, and like he he's doing things right. He wants to ask permission of all that stuff. We have a bit of the relationship between Ben and Gabriel, but I would have expected a little more, especially thinking that like uh, th- this movie being so focused around Benjamin Martin and his family, uh, we see. A little bit at the Gullah village down on the beach where uh, they share an apple and the, the shot is them both eating and chewing the apple like the same way. Did, did you remember seeing this visual where like oh, a piece of apple and then like it kind of shows their two faces like kind of chomping on it the same way. Some of the other side characters do mention, that, oh, he's a lot like you at that age. But I think we probably could have had more. And I think nobody uh, objects to more Heath Ledger. <laughs> but speaking of the people kind of commenting on who Benjamin Martin was or his family or the situation, we kind of get two benefits. One, all of this happens in, what would you say, Chad, like 20 square miles? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the time period. And that's... You are hyper-local, but everybody knows everybody's business. We move between the the, the village. We move between the plantation. We, all of this is so close. Do you think the movie benefits from us being able to like go? It's not just like going down the block. It's going a little further than that. But the idea that this is all in just like one centralized location. I think the 
part of the whole point of the movie and how that uh, they're able to be turned into the South Carolina militia is that it's happening in that 20 mile radius is because they're getting guys that know the, the, the hunting tracks they are getting guys that know where the yeah. bridges are, where you're going to be able to take cargo. If, if you're going outside of that 20 mile radius, like you're not going to have that knowledge. Yeah. You, you can't be a, a, a master woodsman rolling that 20 on your survival check exactly. every time. <laughs> it, it, it makes sense because oh, we know this place. They're on our turf. This is the only advantage we have. What about our combat, sort of our revolutionary guerrilla combat? It's combat that's necessary to win. Because if you're looking at the beginning of the movie, you're just seeing the United States just getting slaughtered by the British. And it is, it is, and they're just winning by numbers. It has nothing to do with skill. It has nothing to do with attack. And then once Benjamin Martin comes in and informs the South Carolina militia, it is, we're not doing that anymore. We are taking over carriages. We are killing people. We're, we're, we're playing a war game. We're aiming for officers. Exactly. Chad, I feel like this is something you might have a little bit of an expertise in, whether it's the military or whether it's the tactics. So they merge some battles together, and but the overall history is, is pretty close. I, this was overseen, well, I'll say that the battle aspect was pretty close. This was overseen by the Smithsonian Institute. They made sure that the locations were accurate, that the costuming was accurate. They clearly didn't review the script, but it's Hollywood. <laughs> do, do what you want. But you do get the impression of just the sheer terror of the Redcoats marching straight at you to a point where their muskets are going to be able to hit you and just that regimented march versus you've got a bunch of people in overcoats and just a hodgepodge of people that cannot stay organized, that don't have a commission, that aren't well trained. And when the man to the left and right of them falls, they falter. They are out of there. And there's just a constant struggle in the army as far as keeping people involved and keeping them enlisted and paying them. So I, I like all of that aspect. We see these rebels that think they know what they're signing up for, but they're undertrained and they don't know what to do. What happens when the guy beside you has his leg blown off by a cannonball? My God, I've never seen this before. Like Washington learned guerrilla warfare. He he watched his general, uh, General Braddock, in the uh, get killed in an ambush by Native Americans. And so from that point on, he had the training when it came time for the War of American Independence to pass that on. It's like, we have inferior numbers. There's a line in the movie that basically says, hey, if you expect to take, take the British in an open field, you're going down. You're going to lose. And Washington knew that as well. So he does a bunch of these hit and runs. We get, uh, this is based on the swamp fox, Francis Marion, who did the same thing down, down in the swamps of South Carolina. He would do hit and runs on British convoys, disrupt their supply lines. So yeah, all of this I am, I am here for. I like seeing, seeing us not as this impenetrable force, but as a flawed fighting unit. Yeah, I think that is sometimes seen, I mean, you, you take other movies, especially like large battles or something where 
Oh, the, the only way to win is through like the non-honorable tactics. But it does it does scratch a very particular itch to be like, this is how we did it. This is how Americans did it. And, I, and so th- there's a bit of uh, whenever you see a battle scene, we see the Americans losing time and time and time again. But when you do see, you know, these hundreds of casualties due to our guerrilla warfare, it does kind of make you cheer, which, which is something that I think this movie needs to have is that you, you need to be able to say, I'm rooting for our people. I've been kind of skirting around getting to these guys, and they are guys, are militia, recruited from the local area. They all seem to know each other a little bit, and uh, we get kind of a, a ragtag group. Uh, who of these bit characters were you paying attention to this time? I cannot tell you his character name. Well, n- name, yeah, but you can uh, It was the the guy that, whenever they stole the great pains, that goes, here's what we do. We keep the guns, we eat the dogs, and then we use the flint. We use the flint, or the paper as flint. And uh, that's, that's John Billings. There we go, John Billings. He is by far one of my favorite characters through this watch. Well, and also you get a little bit of his, and I mean a little bit, dear listeners. We, we just get little snippets of these characters, but you get enough to uh, care about them a bit. You actually get a bit of his family life, too. Well, and that's what's the most messed up part about like his story is that he goes, you know, his kid's not old enough to fight, you know, eight years old. You want to kill me some red coats. Exactly. Right. And he's he's signing up because, you know, that's what he's going to do. This is what he knows. Mel Gibson's Benjamin Martin as like in their past, but it comes down to a I'm I'm going to do this because it needs to get done. And then his story that gets told is he's just the the roughest of the rough. He's the one that gives all the other guys bad names. Like it's uh, yeah, he he's willing to kill the wounded. It's uh, he's just a little bit rougher. And then it comes, it goes to where he uh, right before furlough happened. Probably one of the reasons why furlough happens is because they go back to go check on his family. Oh yes, they're they're going to check. Uh, they're apparently killing people from city by city, and you, he goes back to his family and uh, they're dead. And you know, that's what he's fighting for. And so he just then, Priest goes, this is a time for mourning, not a time for vengeance. And then he just pulls out a pistol and he shoots himself. Mm-hmm. And it's a, that's a real moment. That That's probably the first time I ever saw suicide in a movie. And it, it was a, this is a heartfelt movie about America winning, but it's also a terribly sad movie about sacrifice. I think it's more about the cost of this is not the lives you lose on the battlefield. Yeah, exactly. Those are lives you volunteered for. I believe one of our militiamen, I think when he shows up at the table, like his first question is, I got any bounties? Like he's kind of looking like, like, I'm going to kill for money right here, right? That's what we're doing, right? And I think he's like, no, but you can sell me back some whatever he gets you got. to keep all the muskets and any gear he finds <laughs> off the red like it, it was sell the scalps, wasn't it? I think so. I think the inter- interesting one for me was the slave. Was the slave's name Occam? Occam. Okay. I'll never forget that, by the way. This never is o- Occam's razor. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. This is an interesting one because South Carolina, if you look into it, had a major, major problem, and probably understandably due to the slave population, of arming slaves. And they rejected the prospect of doing so repeatedly 
probably because the slaves would turn on them as they well should. So this guy is is not necessarily historically accurate, but he's a fascinating representation of what happened in other parts of the war. Because there was a huge, huge historical debate of, hey, can I send my slave to fight on my behalf? I'm rich. I don't want to fight. I don't want to die. Can I send my slave on my behalf? And that's sort of what we get here. It just happened in the wrong state. And I appreciated Mel Gibson's character saying, you know, he can make his own mark, not not your owner. And then seeing that that fighting for freedom, because there's a lot of conflict too. We got a little bit of it with a British announcement. Uh, Tavington announces, hey, if, if you're a slave, take up arms from the ground, come fight with us. And yeah, we will grant you your freedom. So there was a lot of debate within the African-American community of what do we do? Do we run to the British? Who's going to break their promise? Because everybody did in the war. And he's just a, he's a character that evolves past, I'm going to make it to my one year mark. And then I'm a free man. And then we get the racist guy from the church who's been giving him crap the entire time. Donald Logue. Yeah. And he he's like, your year's up. Why are you still here? And the guy wants to fight for an even greater cause than his freedom. And I, th- I think this movie, the time period, needs to be brought up again. This is pre-9-11. Like, this is a time I, I long for movies like this of where we could come together and all just focus on a greater cause. I feel like that is just evaporated now. We don't have this type of movie anymore. Are you sure about this was pre-9-11? Okay, hold on, Steven. I knew you were going to make a joke here. He looks at me, dear listeners, he looks at me, he was like, yeah, it was about 200, it was like 225 <laughs> years before 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> we know, Steven. <laughs> he goes, it's he goes, true. <laughs> yeah but yeah as, as in for the production of this movie was yes uh before before 2001 well i i think i read spike lee was really critical of this and he should be <laughs> because what do we get benjamin martin isn't a slave owner these are all freedmen that work for him and we have Donald Logue's character, who is the very like like five percent dangerous racist. Like he he he's he's not he's not as bad. I mean, hey, I'm in Texas, y'all, so we still got it. You know what I mean? But this guy is like mild, mild, mild racism towards Occam, especially in seven. Like in in this year and time frame, it's nothing in comparison of what it could have been. This right. movie kind of dodges that as an yeah. issue. And what ends up happening? Well, Occam saves him during the failed ambush where the dragoons show up. Uh, they come back together, and then at the end, hey man, I'm proud to fight by you any day or whatever it is. I did feel a little after school special like during some of these. Where it's okay. Sometimes the hero is a little too heroic for all things. Got a Superman syndrome. Like, no, I'm going to do the moral right thing. Uh, did that distract either of you two? Some of the like moral positive wins, the things that are like, yes, we know racism is bad. And take a look. The one racist guy isn't racist anymore. Did, do you take it as a fair criticism that this movie kind of dodged that and maybe wrapped up some things uh, a little too neatly? No, because of. This movie is, in a sense, not trying to portray the racism of the time of the movie, but trying to tell a story about a family in the Patriot. You know I think what? It was trying to 
not take away film. And that kind of goes towards what Chad's point was. Like we come together and like oh, everything about who our heroes are, even with the dark past, is like something to fight for. Yeah, Mel Gibson has said he would have made the character of Benjamin Martin a slave owner. He thinks that that was wrong. It appears a bit hokey. Like this type of person typically didn't exist within this environment. Not saying that it wasn't possible, right. but Francis Marion, who was the Swamp Fox, who he was based on, was indeed a slave owner. So yeah, I get Spike Lee's criticism of, hey, African Americans are being portrayed in this movie as just like willing house servants and things like that, hired help Rather, a little too sunny down there in Carolina. Right, rather than an oppressed people. And even the one oppressed guy with Occam, we don't really see a whole lot of mistreatment other than, to your point, 5% racism. Like the guy's <laughs> giving him side-eyed looks and just saying, right. oh, you're black. It's like, that's not the word he would have called him. <laughs> oh, they're they're going to free them and then they're going to pay him? What's right. up with this? Yeah, that's right. That's the quote. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a little too casual. Uh, it's already a three-hour movie, so I don't know how much longer we could go into it, but it, you could easily just change and make it a little grayer of having Benjamin Martin own slaves and come back of, hey, I just fought for everyone else's freedom. What am I doing? Because that was a real debate with a lot of the men at the time and eventually led to the Civil War because we kept kicking the can down the road. (laughs) What are we doing here? We knew as a country and we just kept kicking it down the road to the next generation of Oh, we'll figure it out. And by then, the economy became too dependent on it, and it became a huge, huge problem. I think that's just a problem uh, that's happened, not in the movie, but just overall in general, is that it's always real easy to say that's a tomorrow problem. That's a next right. generation problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 We need money to pay for this war, so we can't free the slaves because they're, they are generating a lot of revenue. So we've got to pay back for everything that we borrowed. Oh, wait, it's 80 years later. Now we're fighting a civil <laughs> war over this because there are human beings involved. Not This isn't all about the color green. Uh, green, the color of Villeneuve's daughter's eyes. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to say, aside from the acts that happen in this movie and the actions and the battles um, and our relationships, There's something that I think we get in this movie. It's not all fear and it's not all a chummy look to the guy next to you like we're going to win this fight. I think this movie has a fair amount of like genuine emotion. Yeah. And I think our actors do a great job of showing that. Now, whether it's something where it's a look from Mel Gibson to uh, Jolie Richardson Charlotte, Aunt Charlotte, maybe it is the look of Reverend Oliver when he looks at his parishioners uh, and he makes a decision and the pretty sick moment where he changes his hat. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> a shepherd has to protect his flock. Yeah. Can you, can you recall from your most recent watch through of like times that the emotion on screen was maybe more than you were expecting for just a warm movie? That's like 90% of the movie. Yeah. There's a, we already talked about uh, a new wedding couple that then gets burnt in a, a, a church. You have a son that dies and then a character kills himself. 
you you have all of these heartfelt things that do not need to be there, but they add character to the movie because you're telling a story of everything that people are going through. It's not just about war. It's about the atmosphere of the country and the feelings of what's happening at the time frame and individual viewpoint. I think you could run down the cast list and identify a meaningful emotional description or visual that's given to us in the movie. Uh, you know, uh, Captain Wilkins, Adam Baldwin, our loyalist who ends up joining up with the Dragoons, you know, he's not really painted to be a bad guy. He's just like, hey, no, this is actually what I believe. He does say something that maybe leans a little bit towards, okay, there's a little sinister sense here when he's like, uh, anybody that stands against the crown deserves to die a traitor's death. That That's when, well, he, well upon getting the order, right. you get to see, and this is, this is a Baldwin here going, there's no honor in this. And I think, I think Tavington responds with something like, uh, honor is in the ends, not the means, or something yeah. like that. And so you get to see this. He's, he's about to commit an atrocity. And it's real, a real credit to, in this case, Adam Baldwin. But we get all of our actors who are showing these strong emotions. Yeah, the officer that's reporting to Cornwallis, who is just exasperated by him all the time of saying, <laughs> hey... Don't go over the hill. It could be a trap. Like you've take, you've taken the field. Just be happy with it. And there's a constant, you know, the the lieutenants, the the underlings are smarter than these egotistical people who have probably bought their commissions, which is what happens. But I think of Chris Cooper, who was our Colonel slash eventually General Harry Burwell. Yeah, Burwell. I, I was calling him Cooper in my notes the whole time because it's easier to call him Chris Cooper. Yeah. Ever, as we run into him further through the movie, his eyes get dimmer. Yeah. And he just has a look of, I'm bringing my men to their deaths. He has no expectations of winning. Towards the end of the movie, we get our our big battle, the Battle of Calpins, and he is marching his line to their death. And he seems to know we aren't coming back from this. They do, but he has no hope. Yeah, th this is really worn on him. I think when, you know, this is definitely after Benjamin Martin re-enlists, but uh, he kind of shows up and he's like, I guess I'm in charge now because right. my general just. Yeah, uh, General Gates. He's right. running yep. to the hills with all his officers behind him. And it's <laughs> just like, who, what, do we, what do we do here? And then that's whenever he uh, field commissions uh, Benjamin Martin to a colonel from his previous captain. So, yeah, we, we have our, our characters' emotions, and we have our great way that they were shown. I suppose that that means we do need to give our credit to our, our director here, Roland Emmerich. Now, uh, he did have—he's got quite a, quite a list of some big, big deal-style movies, uh, whether they're blockbusters or not. Uh, Independence Day, the day after tomorrow, and I'd say Stargate really stand out to me. But um, the I would say it's like this feel of this movie of triumph, we get a little bit of the darkness early, and we know that Benjamin Martin's character is dealing with it. But aside from when Coach told you, "Hey, we're gonna watch, we're gonna watch this movie for three days." Aside from that. I kind of feel pumped up watching a movie Absolutely. like this. Absolutely. It is your, it, it's a movie that at the end of the day we win, but it's, right, yeah. it's a nothing that is 
worth it comes that's easy. And so this is a constant uphill battle. You're struggling with them. And so whenever you get to the end, it's like, oh, we've been through these emotional struggles. And now you get to get that heart field moment just feels so much more. It's interesting having a German do an American movie against the British. And the, the British heap a lot of criticism on him because particularly that church burning scene. like was hey. something that, that not only didn't happen, but. Like people would agree, like, all right, yeah, there might have been some brutal people, but nobody did that. Right. It not only didn't happen on the British side, where it did happen was right. on the German side, the SS soldiers did exactly that. So the British were like, You're comparing us to Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> you were projecting your own history onto us. So that is why they they recoil at this movie so much, but it is an interesting perspective. Well, it has such a lot. Bad Rotten Tomatoes score. If people are seeing it, yeah, the worldwide Rotten Tomatoes people are noticing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. W- were there any other directorial decisions here, Chad, that you were thinking like, wow, whether it's the shot, and there are many to choose from, and I'm, I'm not asking for your best shot here, Chad, but just things that like kind of added to this emotional feel, whether it's triumph or it could, it could be something along the lines of, um, an uneasiness of accepting this cost of war. Uh, I feel as if this movie does lead you to these feelings well. Uh, and I have to say, we have to give Emmerich some credit with that. Yeah, even on the field surgery scene, like we didn't need yes. to have that. And we don't see the, the gory, gruesome details, but you see the men screaming. We talk about taking the leg. They talk about going to go get... Uh, the bone saw and things like that. We see other people, Gabe torn up and yeah. Yeah. He is constantly trying to communicate a loss. So Stephen nailed it as far as uh, nothing is worth fighting for that isn't going to cost you something. Speaking of uh, the cost of battle and, 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 and battle. When I think of this movie, what I realize is I typically think of the last 45 minutes. I think of the rushed response to the church burning by Gabriel uh, and his response, you know, dashing away on horse to find Tavington and his dragoons. Uh, I think that imagery of Tavington, like, yes, I just committed an atrocity, but now I have time for a little shave. Right. Uh, This is how little that their lives mattered to me. Then you've got his subordinate to arms. We've got that battle by the creek. And it's very quickly, then we get the huge emotional blast to you of watching Mel Gibson hold Heath Ledger. You know, obviously we see father holding son. One of the worst things to think about as an audience of losing a family member in that way. But that scene is incredible. And then you follow that up with the, was it Cowpens, that that battle? Yes. I think of this movie like the last 45 minutes, maybe even just the last 30 minutes. Uh, but there is a lot building beforehand, and a lot of stuff is, I think, welcome comedy where it's where it exists. Uh, you have this idea of Jean Villeneuve and Benjamin Martin walk into a bar. It's like the start of a joke, <laughs> and uh, it's almost like buddy cop. Like hey, we're going to walk in here. You sure this is the right place? Long live King George! And <laughs> like right. that's cartoonish. Um, so there's some some of these decisions are sort of like. Okay, that was cute. And it was a minute and a half. And like, that's, 
it kind of lightens things up a little bit. The rocking but, chair at Cornwallis's office, yes. Yes, that I was just about to say that. That was a perfect moment, Chad, is whenever Cornwallis is about to walk in <laughs> and he is just sitting there like on bent over, lifting up a, a chair, just trying to figure <laughs> out, oh, how do you do this? This but, is what's important to yes, me. Yeah, he's listening. he got brought back to reality for a second. He was like, oh, cool, cool chair. General O'Hara, who is that kind of uh, subordinate to Cornwallis, comes in. With the stuffed officer. Oh, one yes. of our officers, <laughs> Lord, Lord Cornwallis. Uh, like that, that's peppered in there. I think that now the last battle is definitely like, all right, the tides turn. I, I mentioned that I thought they were a little after school special, or I, that, that, you know, some things were just a little bit too conveniently good or best ideal about, our, about Benjamin Martin. He is kind of portrayed, even like at surface level, with whenever he speaks, people listen. But it does kind of seem like, oh, now that he's, he's actually smarter than every general that we have. Like, oh, actually, uh, our militia are better than you think. Oh, okay, we're just supposed to trust you. Uh, oh, but the British have seen our militia lines break, too. So he, he's a convenient, like, he, he's not only a murdering machine, but he's also a, a special, like, tactics master. He's handsome enough to get his ex-sister-in-law <laughs> to, to bed down with him. He's got a lot of things going for it. I would say on this watch through, I, I tired of that a little bit, which is the first time I ever had. I was like, man, this guy kind of, aside from his past, like uh, kind of doing everything right. And I almost think that was strange for me to notice. Like, is man, he, they, they really, and, and his piety as well, uh, like all, all of this, he's a really, really good guy. I would say the, the emotional peak of this movie is before the final battle, is with the fight down at the creek. Uh, I think of, the ghost, the first oh. fight scene of a, and you have the soldier coming in to uh, talk to William Tavington to just say, who, how many men were they? And he's just like, uh, uh, um, it one. was one. <laughs> what do you mean it was one? And we had 20 men there. And he was like, are you, it's like a ghost. And you're like, yeah, it was like a ghost. And that first scene to me is everything I think of with the Patriot. And yeah, you, you could say, Chad, uh, it's almost like that SNL skit. It's like this this movie kind of has everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the male equivalent of a Mary Sue is, but he is a Mary Sue type yes. character. He is, he's just well equipped. But again, to the historical times, oftentimes officers were completely incompetent. They would buy their commission. And the more money you had or the more influence you had, the higher your position would be, regardless of whether you were experienced or not. We picked Washington because he actually had experience, but so many of his officers, he would just say, why? Who are you? What are you doing? And when he would find a competent one, that was like his best friend. I mean, when he, he found Knox, he's like, you are my best friend now. You are competent. You understand supply lines. When I tell you to move, you will actually move because that was a challenge. So it, it is, even though we're on the East, it is the wild, wild west as far as getting men to do things. The British had the same problems, even though they were more regimented. So we would write... Uh, the British would write to their generals and say, please move from New York, go attack. And they would say, no, we really want, we have a ball tonight. We are, <laughs> we are dancing tonight. And they just got, 
they fell in love with New York culture. And so they danced the night away instead of chasing Washington's army. So it, it we do get some of... I guess we're kind of lucky that that was the British invasion. 10 out of 10, we win this war, no matter how, <laughs> no matter how it happens. It's the American way. Normally, this is a question, but I'm just going to go around uh, and we can just give... We can give our yes. This is just another John Williams absolute knockout of the park, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one I don't, when you list the John Williams scores, I don't think of this one. Maybe I didn't even know. Uh, I, I didn't know. And yeah. I wrote down immediately. It's like, man, I dig this this music, this intro music. And then it said music by John Williams. I was like, of course. Uh, that is just a, an incredible score. I want to talk about other great things about this movie. And I want to do it in our superlatives. Are we Ready? Ready. Let's do it. All right, Stephen. Who is the MVP of The Patriot? Uh, Mel Gibson. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, the way that he portrays that character, it, the level of inner dynamics that he has, the dialogue that you see without even speaking, the facial expressions that yes. he's able to overcome and his character growth and how you see it changes throughout the movie constantly over and over again as time is shifting. It's, it, I don't think there could be a better actor for that position. It really is. It's probably the thing I'll think about with him more so than Braveheart and more so than Lethal Weapon. What women want? <laughs> it's actually pretty good. Uh, Chad, who's your MVP? I am going with Mel Gibson as well. If you read the critics, every single critic that hated this movie, they all said the same thing. But Mel Gibson was wonderful. They couldn't deny him. This was... This was such a great acting performance. He comes off as this wonderful father figure and just this inspirational guy. Uh, you you guys touched on it. When he's talking to people, their ears perk up. They listen. There's something mm -hmm. in the way he conducts himself and just the, all the subtle emotion that he conveys throughout the movie. It's fantastic. I had a feeling that you would both pick Mel Gibson because I wanted to pick Mel Gibson. I didn't because I knew that he would get his credit. I'm going with, as full MVP here, Jason Isaacs. He deserves as it. Colonel William Tavin. I think it's, it's unfair for me to give the writers credit of his character because it is his character that drives what happens. Yep. Um, that being said, um, man, I think this was the first time I saw like, ooh, the bad guy can be bad, bad to the bone bad. And, and still enthralling as a character. And I used to think he was one note. And then you learn about like, I have nothing left for me in, in England. And this is how I advance myself through victory. Cornwallis comes right back. You advance yourself through my good graces. Like he's not perfect. He is, he's, he's flawed and this flaw is what drives him. And I think Jason Isaacs is uh, great in just about everything I see him in. Who's your best supporting actor, Steve? Uh, Lisa Brenner as Anna Ann Howard. Okay. It is, uh, I think she does an amazing role of portraying that part. Her character itself is, uh, like, as you said earlier, Chad, the women are standing up and speaking. The women are doing their part to just even get men to fight. It's like it's, uh, there's a voice to be heard and someone you have to listen to from a softer touch. And she's believable as that kind of exactly. Role. And Chad, who's your best supporting? I went with Jason Isaacs. I had to get him in here as well. Colonel yeah. Tavington. Unfortunately for us Americans, Bannister Tarleton died of old age in England. He actually served in Parliament. So there was no threat of whatever he did in the Americas influencing what happened in England. Tavington makes that. I think he's like a Jack Gleason type character uh, from uh, 
Game of Thrones, you're just you're driven to hate him like you hate Joffrey, and you can't wait till he's killed off. So this is he does that really well. He just has this wonderful sneer and derision about oh, yes. him. Oh yes, uh, and yeah, that's why I gave him the MVP. My best supporting here is uh, Tom Wilkinson as Cornwallis. I wouldn't have chosen him until I joined this show. And I've become, I've entered this phase where I'm really drawn towards actors with a small part, but a large presence. And he's got a short time on screen, but he's got a great delivery of his lines, like wit. He, he is a large man in the room, so he's kind of commanding the room as well. Uh, and then he gets the benefit of like some close-up shots uh, to see him kind of darting his eyes around or surveying the battlefield. Uh, I, I, I think this was... The, t- the watch, because I think my, my best supporting might change depending on which watch I'm on. But I, I said, oh, man, this, this Tom Wilkinson guy, there's a reason why he was billed last. Like, oh, yeah, this guy's in it, too, and he does a great job. What is your hidden gem of this movie, Stephen? Uh, would be the opening credit scene. It's uh, within the first 15 seconds, you see uh, a hatchet go into a box and an entire close, and then it jumps into who Mel Gibson is now. And I think that box is really foreshadows of who he was mm-hmm. and we'll find out later. And then it's who he becomes again. And uh, whenever he runs back into the fire to go grab that box and he reopens it and then like the ghost is created. I think that is a really, really good scene that just uh, you don't realize the first five seconds shows that box being shut. Yeah, and it was on this watch through that I realized of all the things he could have saved in his house. He had to go get that box. What's your hidden gem, Chad? I am going to butcher this name, so you're going to have to help me. Rene Aubergenois. 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 He is our Reverend Oliver. And while he doesn't get a lot of screen time, I really appreciate the scenes he's in. So he's. this is a figure that would have affected history quite a bit. There were a lot of preachers that were preaching from their pulpit to help the American cause. He actually leaves his pulpit. He's not in in position he's not supporting it initially but he goes and he says okay you know what i need to protect my congregation i need to protect these people that god's entrusted me to and then he follows through and it costs him his life and he's also the one that tosses his gun over his head to be caught by gabriel yes uh he had the shot on tabington but he doesn't take it to help gabriel and Gabriel, we turned out, didn't need the help because he had the little boot knife ready. Mm-hmm. And every time I rewatch it, I think, you didn't have to. You had the shot. You didn't take it. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, God, what a great character. My hidden gem is something that has been hidden to me every single time until this watch. Cool scene of when the British are coming through the cornfields upon Benjamin Martin's house. Mm-hmm. When you get the shot at the side of the cornfields, all you see are just the redcoats coming through. But when you get the shot from further away, you actually see that they're being led by a Native American brave. There's a, there's a guy in a loincloth to their left who's kind of crouched down and he's kind of guiding them in. And I, I'm, it does make you think of those different Cherokee or other Native American like alliances that these everyone's foreign to them at this point so it's like who am i helping or why do i have to and i just thought that was really 
like if they are trying to be as accurate as possible, that there probably were certain alliances. There were several. It's the Iroquois nation. We called George Washington the father of our nation. The Iroquois nation calls him Town Burner because wow. three, three of the five tribes allied with the British. And so Washington, in order to cut off their supplies, went and burned their towns through New York. And so they they call him Town Burner. So wow. yeah, there, there was complexities as to who promised what. And a lot of the uh, Native Americans, unfortunately, their way of warfare didn't work like Western warfare. So they didn't understand, hey, if we ally with someone and we lose, we lose our territory too. And so that led to a lot of confusion and anger. And of course, we as the victors said, no, you allied with them. We take your land. I'm like, wait, what? What? Mm. That, that's how this works? That's how you want it? They didn't understand. So there's tragedy in that as well of just Western yeah. warfare clashing with a completely different culture that's foreign to them. I could have picked so many hidden gems. I'm so glad I picked that one. So you give that little tidbit. That's our, that's our, that's our hidden gem, like uh, second level. I love that. All right. This is a hard one, Stephen. It's a hard ask as our guest in this movie. We like this movie, but you have to recast someone. Oh yeah. Y'all are going to butcher me. <laughs> um, so we're going to tarlatan you. Colonel William, William Tavington. No. Mm-hmm. Yep. Javier Bardem. Okay. I think <laughs> I think the role itself, no matter who you put into it, would have been evil. I okay. think the script was written for him very well, but the one thing that I didn't like about it is he was portrayed as too proper with how evil he was. And like he did have this, oh, I'm better than y'all. I'm still like this like king's thing. But I think there was a level of roughness that was kind of meant. Uh, are missed, and uh, I, I, I think a, a recast of him a little bit more like rougher of a cast. Bardem could play him a bit more primally. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because whenever he does turn, he says, "Oh, I'm going to be an American, the landowner of Ohio." I, I, at that point, he starts doing rougher things, and I think that maybe having showing portraying of who that was and like a darker, uh, muskier uh, would have been a good look. And no, I mean, I, I dig it. I mean. That is coming from a guy who I, I do believe he's like the shining star. <laughs> that's, no, that's, that's, good. that's good. Uh, what about you, Chad? I really like Gregory Smith as Thomas Martin, but I kind of have to pick on him if I'm recasting someone because I, I think I'd put Frankie Munoz in this role. Hey, that could work. He's Malcolm, not quite in the middle. We talked about that little crony of Cornwallis's. Yes. All right. So I think for me, uh, we have are Cornwallis and we have Tavington, and both of them have a second-in-command. And with Tavington's second-in-command, it's a guy named Captain Borden, portrayed by a guy named Jameson Price. He does battle with Gabriel first, and he's he's not winning, but he's definitely like pushing him to his limit. And it's one of those things like, oh, this guy could be menacing. We don't have, and we may not need a uh, like a henchman here to our main villains, but he's kind of the henchman. I was thinking, what if you had another Dragoon who was equally as vicious, who maybe we'd get a one-on-one fight with? And I was like, if we did that, replace this no-name dude with Mark Strong. I think that would be awesome to have just another more menacing guy than Jason Isaacs. Um, I think him and Bardem, that'd be a terrible twosome uh, as the Dragoons. But I was just looking for just a little more muscle in that okay. outfit. We have the best shot and we have a best scene. 
What's your best shot of the movie, Steven? When the furlough happens, you notice his family is completely oh, dead. You're talking about Billings, yeah. Yeah, when Billings uh, shoots himself, best shot. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that, again, was one of the first times seeing suicide in a movie. And it was such like an edge that uh, kind of like you, you you do not expect it on your first watch through. Well, it's also just, I mean, it kind of it kind of comes back to, like, hey, war is hell. Yeah. And this isn't easy for anyone, no matter, hey, we might we might have like a cheer after a victory, but nothing's really that easy. Yeah. Yeah, good pick. What about you? Your best shot? The classic slow-mo shot of Benjamin running with a flag toward Tavington. It is completely ridiculous. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's awesome, and I'm here for it. Mine is right before it when he's up on that kind of raised staircase at Calpen with the light shining through. Uh, it's just moments before what you're describing. Yeah, when Burwell uh, turns around. Yeah. That is so cool. What's your best scene, Steve? Best scene is, of, of course, the first fighting scene of the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, whenever it's one man slaughter, well, really one man, uh, you know, a couple boys. They just completely slaughter 20 men. Um, in, it, it's so brutal, but that's like the, the, the first. This is what you pushed me to. Yeah, it's it's the first steps of the movie. It's like, oh, this is what this movie is going to be about. Because it's quite slow building up to then. And then it just goes straight into Mel Gibson completely chopping someone in the back with an axe. I can see why that's a, a good option for like the best scene. What about you, Chad? You went with best shot. I went with best scene for the hold the line scene when Martin yeah. is charging up. I'll be honest, it, it kind of makes me a little teary-eyed. Mm-hmm. And it's just, our director is great at these type of Americans come together moments. And when all seems lost, the the imagery of the American flag inspiring people to join together and unite, like, man, I miss that feeling. I miss that as a culture. I, I miss that as a people that we just can't come together under one banner and fight for a greater cause. And it just, it makes me nostalgic for all these things. I sometimes think to myself, have I become too selfish, too self-interested, or just too busy to care about like my country, to be patriotic. Yes. And, and then like a, something like this really, yeah, I, I, I feel that way with movies like this. Why these are so welcome sometimes. My best scene is uh, what, what Stephen was describing when Benjamin Martin becomes his most vicious self. And he's, uh, you know, running at this full clip. It's not like he's sitting around, like, working out all the time and doing laps. Yes, he's working hard as a farmer. We even see that. But he just, he lets it all out. And I think that really changes. If you knew nothing about this movie, this really changes what the next nearly two hours are going to be. Is that he's not just a, like, noble leader. He's a monster. I love that. All right. What's your best wardrobe or best makeup moment, Steven? Easy horse blanket. <laughs> that is by far the best wardrobe of the entire movie. Well, I think it's quite nice, your lordship. Fine, it's a nice horse blanket. Exactly. <laughs> and even he says it. It's a nice horse blanket. And I don't think if you can't accept that as the best wardrobe, as you know, General Cornwallis called it nice. <laughs> yeah. That little tailor looks so dejected when he says that. Uh, Chad, what's your best moment? Tavington's hair was absolutely majestic when he's fighting Gabriel, and I could oh, not yeah. stop staring at it. Well, you know, this guy actually works with long hair really well. He uh, has long hair as Lucius Malfoy in the uh, Harry Potter movies. Uh, I didn't go with Tavington. I went with Jackie Cario's Jean Villeneuve's 
cream and blue uniform that he puts on before the battle at Calpens. He looks uncomfortable in it. He's got a fantastic hat and the frilly uh, stuff around his his uh, wrists. But it's just like, hey, this this guy who has an odd place in this movie. I, I, I think that was kind of a, a fun moment to see him. And we also get to see him become quite the battle master as well. He's he's cutting through people left and right. Oh, the I French were instrumental. I One of my favorite American history quotes. So when we landed on the beaches in Normandy, General said, Lafayette, we are here. So the debt owed to Lafayette oh, and his men cool. was carried on like, I'm sure the military carries on these stories and these traditions, but the French have, we've made fun of them after 9-11, but they've been our brothers for hundreds of years. They've had our backs and we've had theirs. Stephen, what are you changing about this movie? Just one thing to change. And Howard lives. That'd be nice. It, yeah. it, it's, it's a, you can get all of the feel of that movie with everything still happening the exact same. There's plenty of tragedy. There's around. so much tragedy that you could have just let it happen. You could have just, you know, let her live, let let Keith Ledger's baby live on, you know? Like, he may die, but at the same time, like, knowing that there's a grandkid out there, like, that's, I think it's something that I would change, just a little bit more heartfelt. Even worldwide, that's a couple of Rotten Tomatoes percentage exactly. points. Exactly. Everyone can appreciate a living baby. Yeah. We're all for living babies here on Retro Movie Roundtable. Uh, Chad, what's your change, one thing? May I sit with you? It's a free country, or at least it will be. Look, there, there are a ton <laughs> of issues with this movie, but... This type of stuff is absolutely not needed. We don't need a wink and a nod to modern sayings. Just don't. Right. Just don't. There, We can have comedy. There's a lot of fun with the dogs, the rocking chairs, everything else. We don't need to bring in this nonsense. Yeah, I can see how that can really take you out of the immersion sometimes. Uh, my change one thing. I think we can ditch the Susan the Mute subplot. Right. <laughs> I don't think we need the extra help to have us believe that Benjamin Martin's a family man. The the moment's really impactful when she rushes in on the beach. Papa, I'll say anything you want. Tell me what you want me to say. Oh my goodness, um, that's heartbreaking. It's and it's it's one of the things I think about with this movie more than anything. I just don't think we need it. When we start trimming extra, I think the part you had mentioned it before when the son Nathan says, I'm glad I killed those men. We don't need our little young killer subplot either. We're seven kids. How about we lose two of these kids? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we the, did. Two of them died. Oh, come on. <laughs> exactly. So, so it if, if you got to have seven so you end up with five. I think if you have five and you end up with three, we're still okay. I, it, it just seemed like these little subplots and it was mere minutes. I just don't know if we needed it. It's not like it was a bad story to tell. Fewer kids, stunning from Dustin. Hey. Save babies, fewer kids. Got it. Old habit. <laughs> Old <laughs> habits die hard. Well, uh, Stephen, tell me your best quote from the Patriot. There's a bunch. Oh, there's so many that I can list right now, but I'm going to have to go with you. Have uh, Mel Gibson come in. He's fighting for his 18 prisoners that get captured whenever they try to take their convoy that's filled with red coats, and then uh, he comes in with a white flag, and he's just like, "Oh, I have 18 of your officers." And then he just he just tells him he's like, well, 
who do you have? And then he just, uh, he lists, you know, ranks of lieutenants and captains. And he goes, in, in one colonel, and I, I don't, he didn't give me his name, but he was, uh, he was a little bigger and he called me a, a cheeky fellow. <laughs> a cheeky fellow. Yeah. It, it, it's going into that. And then right as when it follows, it was one of your officers, Cornwallis. And it's just a, a yeah. Filled with hay. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good one. Yeah. He's, he's a, it's hard to call his character a master manipulator, but he's tricksy <laughs> and he manages to trick everyone a lot. I mean, it's, it's kind of along that Mary Sue thing we were saying. Chad, what's your best quote? A shepherd must tend his flock yeah. and at times fight off the wolves. Maybe that is the best one. I think Chad, Chad might have the winner here. Because you guys already referenced my favorite quote, which is one that I quote with my buddies back in Tennessee all the time, which is, tell me about Ohio. (laughs) But before that, and I'm not even looking at a note. If I just went off the top of my head, he goes over and he pours himself a glass of brandies. If I do this, you know that I won't ever be able to return to England with honor. In order for me to accomplish what you want, I'll have to use tactics that, what did your lordship call them? Brutal? I... Love that. If I haven't already tipped my hand that Tavington's my favorite thing about this movie, his delivery of some of these lines, so great. All right, those are our superlatives. It's time to rate this movie. Steven, we use a five-star scale, lowest being a half a star, highest being five stars. You can use half-star increments if you'd like. What do you rate The Patriot? Oh, man, I'm going to have to tell you right now. It's 13 for the colonies. 13 stars right on the flag. But if I can't do that, it's on a one Nobody said you can't do that. All and right, I, this is our Independence Day episode, <laughs> and Stephen Haley is giving it 13 stars for each 13 of our colonies. If you wanted to give it out of five, what do you think? You'd do? Um, this still goes down as one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a five out of five. The five out of five, and we'll call it a 13 out of 13. It'll have a special place on our long lists. Chad, uh, how do you rate The Patriot? Yes, I this... I've already addressed it. This is a ridiculous movie for a lot of reasons, but you know what? I don't care. I love Troy. I love Braveheart. I'm giving it a pass on the majority of things. I love this film. I'm going, I'm willing to go four and a half stars. Four and a half. Yes. Now I I will say there were things that I noticed this time and there were some things that I read, some shortcomings that I had noticed. Formulaic was tossed around by the critics. Sometimes, you know what? The formula is just right. Right. And uh, Chad, I know you like Troy. I love Troy too. I don't let any outside noise or clatter affect my enjoyment of this movie. Even though I noticed more things to be critical of, I think this is my favorite war movie. Yeah. Mm. If you can call it a flat war movie, which we didn't, uh, I think this is my favorite war movie. And I there's a reason I watched it so many times. Five stars for The Patriot. Or I guess I'm going to jump on the scale too, and I'm going to give it. 50 stars for, <laughs> for the current what we what what they gave us and another, you know it should be 51 stars another anachronism. <laughs> <laughs> so we have broken the scale with how many stars that we have but i definitely do recommend this i think it's time for us to look at our movie selection for next time do you have any options for me chad I do. Even though we just got rid of a king, we're going to do movies about a king. So get rid of the democracy. Dustin, we do need a, a king. All these movies have king in the title, so option okay. 
Option 1, The Last King of Scotland from 2006, based on the events of the brutal Ugandan dictator Idi Amin's regime as seen by his personal physician during the 1970s. Option 2 is King of New York from 1990. A drug kingpin is released from prison and seeks to take total control of the criminal underworld in order to give back to the community. Option 3, the Scorpion King from 2002. Please God, don't pick this. A desert warrior rises up against the evil army that is destroying his homeland. He captures the enemy's key sorcerer, takes her deep into the desert, and prepares for a final showdown with a terrible CGI rock slash scorpion hybrid. <laughs> it's not often that there's an option on here that I loathe, uh, but I think we're all in agreement that there's no way we're picking the Scorpion King. I'm going with Gimme Walkin, Gimme King in New York from 1990. Huzzah! Huzzah! <laughs> yeah, that's what we want. Steven, thanks for breaking our star scale, and thank you for joining the show. You're welcome. Anytime that I can break something, I go for it. This was a blast. Oh, what, what a way to sign out. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Ditcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Happy Independence Day. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Chad? Fought many wars in my time. Some have fought for land, some for power, some for glory. I suppose fighting for love makes more sense than all the rest. <laughs>